Hello, and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Today, January 20th, is the one-year anniversary of Joe Biden's inauguration. In some ways, it's hard to believe it's only been one year. It seems like so much has happened. Congress enacted two major bills, ARPA and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill. And we've been through so many ups and downs with COVID. We've had seemingly endless iterations of Build Back Better in the House and attempts in the Senate. But yet, in other ways, it feels like a lost year. So much devoted to following and understanding, speculating and planning for the Build Back Better Act, all for naught so far. So the question we get every day is what now is the strategy for the administration or for Congress to move Build Back Better on from here? That's a good question, maybe the question. So I took notice last week when it was widely reported that former President Bill Clinton had spoken with President Joe Biden about strategies for Build Back Better. I mean, when a former two-term president gives you advice on how to, well, be president, you normally listen. And here is what Bill Clinton said he told the president. Quote, I told Joe, break it up, pick one or two pieces you can swallow, and then run on the rest, unquote. Perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not, President Biden conducted an extended, nearly two-hour press conference yesterday. And wouldn't you know it, the topic of how to move Build Back Better came up. And that's our topic for today. How might the bill move forward from here? And what, of course, does that mean for tax? To help me do that today, we are joined by our old friends, Jenna Cunha and Carol Coolish. So, Carol, my first question is for you. So, I just said we had this very long press conference yesterday. Remind us what exactly President Biden said on what potentially is his approach to moving Build Back Better from here. Thanks, John, and Happy New Year, everyone. Well, let me follow exactly what he said. I'm actually looking in front of me at the transcript from last night's, as you said, lengthy press conference. The president was asked early on whether he was confident he could get something signed into law with regard to Build Back Better before the midterm elections. And his response was, yes, I'm confident we can get pieces, big chunks of the Build Back Better law signed into law. Then he subsequently was asked another question to follow up. When you said that major chunks of Build Back Better can pass, are you planning on breaking it up? And the president's response was, yes. Well, it's clear to me that we're going to have to probably break it up. I think we can get, and I've been talking to a number of my colleagues on the Hill, I think it's clear we would be able to get support for the $500 plus billion for energy and the environmental issues that are there. Number one. Number two, I know that the two people who've opposed, on the Democratic side at least, support a number of things that are in there. For example, Joe Manchin strongly supports early education, three and four years of age, strongly supports that. There's strong support for, I think, a number of the ways in which to pay for this proposal. So I think there is, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to negotiate against myself as to what should and shouldn't be in it, but I think we can break the package up get as much as we can now and come back and fight for the rest later. And that's the part I would probably emphasize that to me, the message, I want to read one more piece of his transcript, but basically saying, let's see what we can do now. And then we'll come back and see what we can do with what we don't address now. We'll come back and see if we can do something with it later. He also was asked after that about the child tax credit, presumably about the enhancements that Democrats had made to the child tax credit, including the advanced refundability. He was asked about that, and he said, 
that there's two really big components that I feel strongly about that I'm not sure I can get in the package. One is the child care tax credit and the other is help for cost of community colleges. They are massive things that I've run on, I care a great deal about, and I'm going to keep coming back at in whatever fora I get to be able to try to get chunks or all of that done. So as I said, I think the bottom line is he is taking a look at what's in Build Back Better Act now and seeing what parts of it you can take and perhaps modify and move forward. But the other stuff they don't address is still he wants to put a marker out there that it's still a priority of his and he'll still keep fighting for it. Okay, so two quick follow-ups there then with you, Carol. So we talked about the child tax credit. I mean, this has been, am I correct, one of the stickiest points here that they've had to negotiate, that Joe Manchin, while not absolutely opposed to the child tax credit, I think has had this concern about how the House-passed version of Build Back Better dealt with the child tax credit. Is that correct in terms of what the problem was there? And so, as you alluded to, it perhaps would be moved out of this first effort in how to push Build Back Better forward. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, he's had a number of concerns with the House bill provision, one being that it's temporary, very temporary, and thinks that Democrats instead should look at making programs last longer term rather than just putting a lot of different programs in the bill on a temporary basis that you're going to renew down the road anyway. On child credit in particular, he's also expressed some concerns, for example, about whether there should be a work requirement. The House bill version, the enhanced version that they, they've had has gone to people regardless of whether they work more as so making sure that they have money for their kids regardless of whether they satisfy a work requirement. So yeah, I think that's a fair summary, John. Okay, so if that was part of what the holdup was back in December, well, then perhaps that does allow it to move forward. Here's my other question. Going back to what Bill Clinton said, because it's easy to look at what President Biden said and say, well, he just did exactly what Bill Clinton told him to do, but maybe not. So here's what Clinton said. I told Joe, break it up, pick one or two pieces you can swallow, and then run on the rest. When I hear him say run on the rest, that means we're not doing it this year, but elect us in the midterms and we'll get it done then. That's not quite what Biden said, is it? No. And Biden himself doesn't have to run for another couple few years. It's more the midterm congressional elections. I think Biden was trying to let other Democrats know that he's going to continue to fight for those priorities, but he's not going to hold up the stuff that they might be able to get done now while he sees if there's a path forward or not on the other things. But I think he's expressing a commitment, and that may well be helpful to some of the Democrats in their midterms in the House that they at least can run on the fact that they're still trying and they're still fighting for some things. But I think what Biden really was trying to do was let other Democrats know and let the American people know that these are still priorities. He's still going to see if he can find a way forward, but he's going to try to at least move forward the stuff now that he can see a path forward for work to see where there can be consensus with Manchin and with getting all 50 Senate Democrats on board and to try to move that and then continue to fight for the others. All right. Well, good. Well, then, Jen, let me bring you into this because, look, far be it for me to question the advice or the judgment of the current president or the former president. But let me just say, let's just state the obvious here for everybody that's following along. It sounds logical. I just break it into pieces and we'll do them one by one in smaller pieces. And then, you know, in the end, you get all of it anyway. But tell us again why breaking Build Back Better into multiple chunks and passing each one separately, that's not necessarily doable either, is it? Remind us why. Well, there are many reasons, but the two big drivers for what makes this extremely difficult and why, frankly, it hasn't already been done. Number one, the calendar. This is an election year. And, you know, typically 
Congress moves big pieces of legislation when there are must-pass bills, when there's something that has to pass, hitches a ride. And by virtue of the fact that this is not a bipartisan bill, it has to be done through reconciliation. So one, the calendar, there's only one reconciliation bill that's available right now. So if you break it up into chunks, with that first chunk, you're using that first train that's going to leave the station that can pass through a partisan-only vote. And the next big problem, and it's kind of a, this is probably even worse than the calendar as a general matter, is what goes first? Who gets a spot on the lifeboat? Which provisions make it in? Which have to sit out and wait for the next train to arrive? That is probably the biggest problem. That's even bigger than just the fact that there is only one reconciliation bill that's available at the moment, right? They have to pass this bill. Then they would have to pass a new budget in order to get another reconciliation instruction that could pass on a partisan-only basis. But one, the calendar, not their friend. Number two is what provisions make it in, which ones have to sit it out, and with the full expectation that there may not be a second ride. So I, I think those are just the practical issues, right, before we even get into hashing out which provisions have support, which ones can afford to be set aside. It's going to be a battle, and that's going to eat away at the calendar. And the clock is ticking because this is an election year. And at some point, you know, members just go into full midterm mode. And that time is coming quickly. Yeah, so you're right. They only have the one 50-vote budget reconciliation vehicle presently available. As you say, they could do another one. And normally, remind me, Jen, the budget process begins in the spring. You're working on the budget in the spring, but it often gets done later. They could do the fiscal year 2023 budget, give themselves new reconciliation instructions. But that's not a certainty either, is it, right? Because you would need every single Democrat to agree that they might, they may not, right? They would need unanimity, um, like they did in, in order to pass this budget. And remember, the passage of this budget, the one that gave rise to this reconciliation instruction and this reconciliation vehicle, that was not a smooth process in and of itself. Something that would take time and every week that passes closer and closer to that August recess, closer and closer to the elections. And I don't know if you agree with this, either of you, but, you know, it, it seems logical that if you take it in smaller bites, it maybe it's easier. But in a weird way, sometimes it's easier to do these things in a mega bill where you can combine all these pieces because everybody has a different priority. And as long as you can put everybody's priority into the same bill, you might say, well, I don't really love that thing. It's not a major priority for me. But, you know, the thing that I really care about is attached yeah. to it. So if we put it all together, I'll vote for it. Versus if I had it broken up separately, I may not fully support that. Is that another potential friction here if you start breaking it into pieces? Definitely. You break it into pieces and there's a limited number of provisions that can make it in. Every provision that makes it in is one of your potential provisions that has to sit out. That can become a real big problem. I mean, these big bills, the reason that they're easy to pass, and oftentimes they pass on a bipartisan basis, is that you may not love everything that's in it, but you got everything you wanted in it. That's that give and take. That would not be possible if you break it up into chunks. All right. Well, then, Carol, let's come back to make this as practical as we can. If we truly only have one more legislative vehicle to move this year, maybe two, maybe. But let's just start with this assumption that we only have the one that has the bipartisan support. Practically, what does that mean then for moving Build Back Better? What would have to happen to get things in action then in this sort of skinny down version of Build Back Better? Well, well, let me also just back up for a second, because when we talk about breaking it into chunks, I think you have to look at it practically as if the first chunk is going to be 
the stuff they can reach political consensus on in the Senate right now, that you can get all 50 Senate Democrats on board. The stuff that's going to go overboard is going to be the stuff that people like, for example, Manchin has an issue with. So for me, part of the issue with the possibility of a second bill is that second bill almost by definition is the stuff that there's not consensus on right now. And the question is, if there's not consensus right now, what is going to change that causes there to be consensus down the road? And that goes to Jen's lifeboat theory that people kind of know that second bill may never be coming. So everybody wants to be on that first. But the stuff that's going to be jettisoned that's not going to be in the first bill is going to be the stuff that they don't have all the Ds on board for in the Senate. So talking about a second reconciliation bill, to me at this point is almost a little bit what's the point because – You wouldn't go through a second reconciliation process unless you knew you had all 50 Senate Democrats on board. Otherwise, it's just kind of pointless. So I do agree. I think they're they're in all likelihood looking at, at least now, you know, looking at what's the stuff we can find, the lowest common denominator where we can get all 50 Senate Democrats on board. And I think they start with the House version of the Build Back Better Act. And then, then they eliminate the stuff that maybe they end up eliminating or modifying, carving back in some form. The child care credit provisions, they may have to modify some other programs. If Manchin or some of these that are also short term that he thinks perhaps should be longer, fewer programs, they may have to make those kinds of changes. Given Manchin that he seems to be supportive of something in the energy space and something in the health and pre-kindergarten space, you could see something being in it there. But I think they start with the House bill and they end up looking at what do we have to take out or modify and maybe even something you have to add to get somebody on board. So you could end up with something at the end of the day that could be smaller than the House bill, given the cost of the child care provisions, but it could also end up being relatively close to the size of the current bill. It's just too soon to tell. At the end of the day, though, I think you know they're going to start talking with Manchin again, trying to see where they can get consensus. At the end of the day, they try to see what they can get 50 votes in the Senate for, while also trying to keep almost all of the Democrats on board in the House. They ultimately would have to move this modified version of a bill through the Senate. And now the Senate would have a bill that's different than the House bill. So the House is going to have to either pass the Senate version or there has to be some sort of reconciliation of differences with going to Jen's point eats up the clock. So my assumption is that they try to do something they might be able to even just pass the House. But that raises those difficult issues Jen was talking about, that everybody's going to want their stuff to be in, in this bill, given that there might not be a second one. And at the end of the day, I think what's left over, what doesn't get put into this bill, it may end up largely being messaging. We may see the House pass further legislation that just doesn't go anywhere in the Senate. I could also see some remote chance that some of the stuff that doesn't get in this, that some of the non-controversial stuff, there might be a run at whether there could be bipartisan consensus so they could move something through the Senate on some provisions. But right now, I'm not sensing a whole lot of appetite for bipartisanship. So I'm just mentioning that for sake of completeness. And to paraphrase, you know, sort of what you said, you know, we've been talking about breaking it up into chunks. It almost sounds like what you're saying, and it makes sense. Not so much breaking it up as breaking stuff off. Right? So, you know, ask yourself, like, what parts do we have 50 votes for stays in? Parts that maybe at the moment don't have 50 votes, break it off. Okay, we'll come back to that later. And then try and move the parts that we can currently move and worry about the rest later. All right, then, Jen, let's just come back to tax. If we assume Build Back Better does get reduced in size, seems inevitable, then should we assume that the tax title shrinks, shrinks proportionally? And if that's true, what pieces do you think are most likely to stay in? 
That is the question of the year, right? Because we're not really talking about chunks, are we? We're talking about what we were talking about before, a skinny down Build Back Better Act. Like, let's not kid ourselves that these are actually multiple pieces that are going to potentially move. But in the tax space, I think that's right. The bill, as passed by the House, had a significant number of revenue raisers, raised over $2 trillion, and they're just not going to need that much revenue. And because of that, if this bill does get skinny down, that has to get skinny down in order just to pass the Senate, then you're going to see a reduction in the tax raisers that are needed. And those are going to be broken up into two buckets. One is going to be the business bucket and the other is the individual bucket. And there's one giant target in the business space. And I don't know if you guys agree with me or not, but that corporate AMT, it was a novel provision, has not been road tested has been, I mean, everyone on the Hill has been getting an earful about it. That one is the prime target for potential skinning or complete elimination from the package. I think that is just the most, you always go with the big numbers. And that one on the corporate side has the biggest price tag. So that would be one of the biggest targets for skinning down. On the individual front, it's a lot harder because there aren't that many individual pieces that are left. Some of the biggest ones, that individual surtax, There's that um, limitation on losses, 461L, that has big numbers associated with them. It's really going to depend on where the consensus is, because there's really only a handful of individual provisions. But if there's relief on the corporate side, you can expect to see relief from that House Pass version of the Build Back Better Act on the individual side as well. And you could either see complete elimination of these provisions or, like, for instance, on the surtax modification, right? You can change the income thresholds at which it kicks in on the limitation of losses. You know, you could go back to that Biden Green Book proposal that raised a significantly less amount of revenue. I mean, there are things that can be done without eliminating the provisions wholesale. So implicit in that answer, two things. One is you don't see a scenario where they raise more tax revenue (laughs) actually need, right? No? Absolutely not. (laughs) I know. Yeah, there is just almost no precedent for Congress paying back past spending with a current bill. I mean, almost none. I can't think of any in the 20 plus years I've been doing this. I think maybe back in the 90s, you had some deficit reduction bills, but it's been a while. So seems unlikely. Okay, so question for you then, Jen. It sounds like one of the things I didn't hear you talk about is that whole international package, you know, the changes to guilty, the changes to beat. I didn't hear you say that those were coming up. Do you think those are likely to stick in at least mostly as currently proposed? Potentially. I mean, I think that these are some of the more on the corporate side, you know, some of the provisions you haven't heard a lot of pushback against these provisions among members of Congress. Among the senators, there hasn't been a um, highlighting of the international title or problems related to the title. The biggest problem that came out of the Senate that was fixed in the House bill was the delayed effective date. There was a push to delay the effective date on the guilty changes to a year out. That was solved for. Maybe you could see a further push out of that deadline of when those provisions would become effective. I think the biggest question is, if there is a bill, it is likely to include this international tax package that was passed by the House, maybe with a delayed effective date, a further delayed effective date. Yeah, I mean, look, that's so important, not only to help pay for the bill, but so important, especially for the administration, 
in making those guilty and beat conforming changes to get at least guilty to be a compliant regime under the Pillar 2 negotiations. I'm with you, is that not everybody loves it, but certainly on the Hill, we're not publicly anyway, people aren't screaming, you know, that this is a problem, unlike, as you said, the book minimum tax, Section 163 and the additional interest limitation, where we're hearing a lot of pushback on those. Okay, last question for you both then. Maybe I'll start with you, Carol. You know, one of the, one of the things we did late last year, I think it was in around November, that we got some feedback on saying, you know, people saying that was really helpful, was we had a very rigorous look at the calendar to say, okay, let's look at the calendar and try and predict where the challenges are going to be, what the key timing points are going to be on the bill. So we did that for the late last year. We're going to try it again much earlier in the year. We're looking at the whole year. But let's just come back to the calendar to discuss what the key dates are ahead for those listening so that they can track progress on Build Back Better. So, Carol, why don't you take the first crack? What's an important date that people should be thinking about? Okay, and but, but let me just rewind for just one second because I want to go back to what Jen and you were just talking about. I generally tend to agree with Jen's response, and I think there's a good chance that they may need less revenue. I just, to me, I, I, I'm a little squishier as to how likely that is. I do think there's also a chance that depending upon how they revise these other programs, if they make some programs longer in duration or if they make other modifications to get consensus, they may end up making some of the revenue cost of some things might become more expensive. And at the end of the day, under the reconciliation instructions, the tax writing committees have to cover and then raise a billion more, which is pocket change in the scheme of things. But they have to raise at least as much money as they spend. And it, it, to me, I, I won't rule out the possibility that they continue to spend an amount that's close to what's in the House bill. I do agree, though, I don't think the bill is going to grow. But it wouldn't completely surprise me if they didn't end up doing a bill that they still need it significant revenue close to what's in the House bill. But that's not the thing you asked me. You asked me about dates. Why don't we do this chronologically? I'll throw a date out and then Jen can throw out another date. Uh, but I'm going to move to the next date on the calendar. I just think people should keep in mind February 18th is the date that they either have to have passed appropriations bills by for the, the fiscal year that began last October, or they have to do a continuing resolution. That is going to take some time off the clock because they're still trying to reach consensus as to what to do with the CR. I do imagine, though, while those talks are ongoing, they still can be, of course, talking about other things as well, including having conversations with Mansion. But that is a date I would at least take note of because it's something else they have to do. They have to deal with, with funding the government by, by February 18th because they don't want there to be a full or partial government shutdown on the 18th. I think it's safe um, to say neither party wants there to be a shutdown on the 18th. So I think you're right. Full focus on that. And I think it's also true they're not really going to get around to focusing on that until probably early February anyway. So you can see that that could take at least the first half of February. All right. That's an absolutely essential, important date, Carol. All right. There's one. Jen, you want to go next? What do you got after that? Well, I've got to warn you, John, there aren't a whole lot of dates on this calendar this year. <laughs> right. So we're, we're heading towards the end of the timeline immediately following the government funding bill that you may want to put on the calendar is that State of the Union that is scheduled for March 1st. That may be considered somewhat of a deadline in order to have at least some progress that the president can discuss during his State of the Union address. Whether or not that provides enough of a fire under Congress in order to make more progress, that's another question. But it will be on the heels of the government funding. So, you know, maybe that provides some momentum. But that is the next item on the calendar, that March 1st State of the Union address. 
Whether or not that provides the deadline necessary to make progress, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure very much the administration would like to be able to go before Congress and the American people and say, unlikely to say, today I signed a law, Build Back Better Act. That's not going to happen, probably. You never know, but probably not. But they might be able to say, we have an agreement and we're making great progress. So that is definitely an important date. They would love to have some progress to report. Okay, Carol, back to you then. Once we clear the State of the Union, March 1st, are there any obvious big dates after that? Well, my next date is April 15th, the the filing deadline for individuals. And at this point, at least it looks like they're keeping that date this year instead of in the past couple of years with COVID, we've seen it pushed back. But right now, April 15th, at least that's the time we're recording this, April 15th is the due date for individual returns. The reason I raise that date is if you look at the House bill, there are some provisions in there that are favorable to individual taxpayers that I think Democrats would like to have apply with their House bill effective dates. They benefit people for the 2021 tax year, which would be something that would be a benefit to them on their tax returns that they'd be filing in April. If they don't make it by then, and if enough time goes by that they end up changing effective dates or whatever they do, if people don't realize the advantage of a change in tax law until 2020 three when they're filing their returns for 2022. I'm sure Democrats, they're hoping they retain the House, but if the House flips, that's kind of like not the best situation to be in, that you pass something that becomes law, but people don't get the benefit of it while, while you're still in office. So I do think that there may be some pressure to try to get stuff done so that they can provide some of the benefits that would be reflected on the uh, 2021 Tax returns. Yeah, excellent point, Carol. We did an effective dates episode last time where we talked about the state and local tax reduction and other things. And not only the fact of, of allowing the benefit, but also potentially avoiding the need for people to file amended returns, you know, which right. gets, makes it kind of messy. So doubly true. That's a really good one I hadn't thought of. All right, Jen, what, else, what do you got after April 15th? August recess. Okay, right. <laughs> There's always a rush to try to get something done by August recess. But it rarely materializes in an actual piece of legislation. I mean, sometimes it does, but rarely. So maybe August recess, the beginning of August recess. At that point, I mean, I've got to tell you that by August recess, everyone on the Hill is going to be in midterm mode. After that, there's one more potential deadline on this list. Well, there's a deadline, but but you got to do it before this deadline, which is the elections yeah. are on yeah. November 8th. Yeah. And if you're trying to use that to get people to vote, the House races and the Senate ones are in play, you would like the thing to become law well enough in advance that you can be touting it on the campaign trail. So they're certainly going to try their hardest to get it done as far in advance of that date as they can. But November 8th is the date of the midterm elections. Yeah. Oh, I can't believe you guys forgot another obvious one. December 31st. Come on, extenders, everybody. You know, we come back in the lame duck session. Aren't they going to rush to try and deal with maybe 163J, maybe 163J? Yeah, but that's extenders? But we were talking about build back better. I know, but no. At that point, yeah. (laughs) If we're going to mention the end of the year, then we should mention that there is going to be the debt limit is going to come up sometime at the end of November. It's anticipated that there will be a must-pass piece of legislation with the raising of the debt limit. There could even be another CR if they cut the appropriations down the road in February but we don't know that date yet, but that could be a marker that's out there. So there are dates, but as Jen said, there's not a tremendous number of dates. And right. I kind of think that the odds are 
better sooner rather than later. I kind of look at like a line sloping downwards that the longer you go on the clock, the harder it gets. So I would tend to think that if they're going to get something done, they're, they're going to try to get it done sooner rather than later. Yeah, and I guess we can close with this. I totally agree with you. Like, as the further the dates go out, the more speculative they become. But I think it's absolutely true, and I suspect we all agree, that every week that goes by, it gets a little bit harder to do. And at some point, it'll just, frankly, be impossible, I think. Now, exactly when that is, we can debate, but I think that's probably true. Well, that's all we have time for today, you guys. That was a great conversation. I thought the calendar discussion especially was very interesting. I hope it's useful to people. Let's wrap up today by maybe not talking about tax for a second. I have something else on my mind, and it's probably a non sequitur, so feel free to drop now. No hard feelings, but I wanted to talk about music. Now, if you've got kids, especially teenage kids, you know the scenario I'm about to describe. You're riding in the car, and they put on their music, and you ask to yourself, or maybe you ask it out loud. Listen, that's not advised. Uh, don't ask me how I know that. So you ask to yourself, how can anybody listen to this noise? Kids today have no appreciation for the great music of, insert decade here. Don't tell me you haven't experienced that. I know you have. Now, you may have seen a couple of years ago, the New York Times released a study that shows that for most people, your favorite song is likely your favorite song from when you were 13, if you're a woman, or 14, if you're a man. Interesting, you say, but what does this have to do with Build Back Better, John? Well, honestly, not much, but stay with me here. I know you are a podcast listener. I know that because you're here. And if you're a teen of the 90s and demographics suggest that many of you are, I cannot recommend highly enough the podcast, 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. It's funny and it's insightful and it will reimmerse you in the cultural landscape of that decade. I mean, we already talked about Bill Clinton today, so hey, why not double down on the 90s? Over the holiday break, I was listening to one of the newer episodes and that one was all about the Counting Crows song, Long December. Remember that one? And I hadn't listened to it for quite some time. And maybe because I had Build Back Better on the mind there in late December, early January, I couldn't help but hear that song differently. So give it a try. Go ahead. Listen to it again. But try, if you can, to close your eyes, maybe turn your head slightly. And as you do that, think about the events of last December. And maybe, just maybe, you can hear the Senate Majority Leader singing the lyrics to a certain senator from West Virginia. Or maybe not, but definitely do not miss the podcast, 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. It is excellent. In conclusion, based upon what we learned this week, how do Democrats feel about Build Back Better now? Well, I'm paraphrasing here, but maybe it's something like this. It was a long December, but there's reason to believe that maybe this year will be better than the last. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, your comments, and suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I do hope to see you soon.